Okay, well, open your Bibles to Colossians. And this morning I'll be reading Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 to 23. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Let me begin this morning by asking you a searching question. And that is, have you made Christ less central in the Christian life than he really is? Have you tried to make him less central in the Christian life uh, than he really is? Are you trying to make him less central in the Christian life than he really is? Did Christ loom large at the moment of your salvation and his grace and his disposition towards you, which was in his heart uh, towards you and his work? on the cross, what he accomplished there, um, and his character that was put on display by the work that he did on uh, the cross. Did, did Christ, in all of those ways, loom large to you at the moment of salvation, but now in the Christian life, with its struggles, with its difficulties, with some of its setbacks, with, the, with its ups and downs, has Christ become smaller in your eyes, a smaller part uh, of that, more distant? more like a spectator than a participant, um, more peripheral, more of an afterthought. Has your Christian life become more mechanical, less uh, personal? Was Christ present to you in a sharp living color at the moment of your salvation? But as the Christian life takes place, he's faded to gray and the Christian life has become much more about uh, something else. Well, Something like that, something like what I'm describing, happened to the Colossians. And the vacuum was filled with all the usual kinds of man-made devices, man-made mediators, man-made techniques that come from the human heart, not to the human heart. Christ comes to the human heart. But these are the kinds of things that come from the human heart to stand between you and uh, the Lord. And so that uh, the, the Colossians took their eye off of Christ, and you can get little hints in the letters of these things that had come to take uh, his place, such as uh, man-made laws, relationships with angels, I guess, as their uh, spirit guides that they were seeking in place of uh, Christ, or uh, mysticism, things that seem to give them a second tier on Christianity, give them a leg up on uh, other Christians as, uh, uh, that seemed to advance them higher than others with maybe a special knowledge uh, that was given to them, but what actually kept God at arm's length and uh, denied his love, which is found in Christ, as if there's something better to be found, something else that can give you a leg up uh, besides uh, that. Well, when they did that, it actually gave the Christian life a totally different shape. And so Paul's task in the letter of Colossians is to remind them of the centrality of Christ. He's everything in the Christian life. And then remind them of the shape of the Christian life 
as well. That comes a little later in the epistle, and it matches the character of Christ, because Christ is everything. And that's Paul's point in uh, Colossians. Well, we finished a high point, one of the mountaintops in Colossians last time when we read verses 15 through 20, uh, which just praises Christ as preeminent in all things, preeminent in creation and then uh, preeminent in redemption as well as God's uh, central uh, point in those things. Uh, the tone of those verses is lyrical, kind of poetic. The scope is vast. It's on the vast canvas of the whole universe. Um, the assertions made and the claims that are made um, about Christ are breathtaking. They are uh, mind-blowing. And uh, in in uh, giving them these verses, 15 through 20, we looked at it that uh, last week, Paul was possibly reminding them of something that they s- sang in church regularly. It sounds like a hymn. A lot of uh, commentators believe uh, that it was a hymn. Can't really be proved, but uh, it, it, seems, it seems to me that it perhaps uh, it was. If so, it's amazing that the first Christians came to believe that Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection was the key for the reconciliation of the entire sin-cursed universe to God again, that the, the whole curse might be repealed because of what happened at the cross and what happened three days later at the resurrection of, of uh, the dead in uh, Christ. And it's amazing that they believed that this reconciliation had already begun in the church as Christ ascended uh, on high and then became head of the church in uh, the world. Well, if this is a hymn that Paul is quoting, and it seems that it could be, um, then uh, it's over in verse 21. And Paul is picking up on the final theme of this hymn, if that's what it is, which is reconciliation, where he repeats that theme, reconciliation, elaborates on it and applies it to the Colossians themselves. He's not only recognizing the whole universe, he's reconciling you, you Colossians. And uh, the same thing that he's done uh, and accomplished for the universe yet to be worked out, but it's finished uh, in Christ, he's also done for you. And so um, the first words of verse 20 is, and you, and it's given emphasis by being put to the front uh, of them. And then the key thought, it actually comes in verse uh, 22, is he has reconciled you. He has reconciled you and everything else basically fits uh, into that. That is, Christ has uh, reconciled you. We talked about this word reconciliation. It's an important word, a word you should know uh, in scripture. It means an exchange. In fact, um, the word is related to the word exchange. You can see that in, um, in the Greek word, but it's a certain kind of exchange, very specific. It's an exchange of enmity for friendship. It's an exchange of enmity for friendship. That's what reconciliation uh, is. And uh, Paul's talked about Christ reconciling all things to himself, the entire universe, repealing the curse itself. And uh, in this passage, he's going to talk about um, uh, Christ reconciling the, the Colossians to himself. And he's going to the point that he's going to make is that all of their reconciliation, all of them being taken from being enemies to now being friends is all in Christ. It's all um, in Christ. So the purpose is that they would make Christ 
central in the Christian life as he really is. And that's the purpose for you this morning, too, is so that you might make Christ central. Think of him, trust in him as central as he really is to the Christian life. So three verses and uh, three aspects of your reconciliation, your exchange of enmity to friendship with uh, God. First is uh, why it's needed, verse 21. Second is where it exists, verse 22. And the third is how you experience it. So all those those aspects of your uh, reconciliation. And the first is why it is needed, why your reconciliation, you being taken from being an enemy to a, to being a friend of God, is uh, needed. And uh, Paul gives this to you in an assertion about the past, or gives it to the Colossians, but the Holy Spirit's giving it to you as well with an assertion about your past, verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. And so he reminds them of what they were before Christ. And I want you to think back to what you were before Christ. And if you weren't saved as a really small child, then you should remember um, what you were uh before Christ, as opposed to what you were after Christ. But I don't want you to think so much of your evaluation of what you were before Christ and what you were after Christ, but instead God's evaluation of what you were before Christ and his evaluation of what you were after Christ. In fact, you may have felt that God was your friend before you met Christ, but when you did, you didn't know him as he is. You needed to go from enmity to friendship, even at that point. You didn't know him as he is. You were knowing an idol of your own making. And likewise, you may have felt that God is your enemy after Christ. Uh, read the Psalms. Uh, the, David felt that way uh, sometimes. Uh, but when, when you have, after you've known uh, Christ, again, you're not knowing him as he is. He's gone from enmity to friendship. You've gone from enmity to friendship with uh, God if you think of uh, God as your enemy after being reconciled uh, in Christ, again, it's an idol of your own making. Christians make idols too. Uh, it comes out of uh, the human heart. And so uh, that's um, not your evaluation that Paul's really tracking here, but uh, God's uh, before Christ. And, and what is it? He says this, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, Engaged in evil deeds. He says you were estranged, alienated, excluded. And um, Ephesians is uh, often uh, parallel with uh, Colossians. And it also uses this word, uh, alienated, except it says what, what we were alienated from. Uh, it says, um, Ephesians 4.17, This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded, and there's, there's our word, alienated, estranged, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And he goes on to tell the Ephesians, you're not like that anymore. And so uh, you shouldn't be acting in that uh, way. But Paul says here in Colossians, he's reminding them of why they needed uh, reconciliation. And he uh, says uh, to them, you were formerly alienated. You were formerly a, a, a stranger. 
toward God, and it resulted in hostility. Resulted in hostility. And he, so he speaks of their disposition toward the true God, alienated from the whole life of God, alienated from fellowship with God, and hostile to the one true God. Maybe not hostile to an idol of your own making, but hostile towards the one true uh, God. Romans chapter 1, and I won't uh, turn there just yet, but uh, describes this in uh, more uh, detail. It says hostile in mind, and that's where the description of uh, the natural man starts. In Romans chapter 1 is in the mind that suppresses the truth about God as he is, refuses to honor him as God, and refuses to give thanks to him, which seems like a small thing, refusing to give thanks uh, to God. But it results in deeds that reflect the heart, and that's the same here. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. And so because of the hostility towards the one true God, it results in deeds. They're given uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse uh 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things that are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And this uh, speaks of the deeds that come from a heart that's alienated from God, that's hostile to God, and it's expressed outwardly in the body with all of these kinds of ugly uh, deeds of the flesh. They're deeds that express a life of self, greediness, murder, uh, all, all these things, uh, deceit, malice, uh, and express uh, a life of uh, self, some more ugly outwardly than others. We've seen on display the human heart with these horrible attacks of Hamas uh, against Israel. Hamas, by the way, is the word for violence. That's the Hebrew word when when God looked down um, in the days of Noah and saw that violence covered the earth. The Hebrew word is Hamas. It's the same word uh, that's given uh, there. So those are are uh, violent deeds. They're unspeakable acts of uh, evil, but what they're showing is they don't know God. They don't know God. They're estranged from the life of God, and uh, they are hostile towards the one true God, and then their deeds express that. And the same is true of you, apart from Christ. That's what you once were, apart uh, from Christ, and probably not in uh, as... Um, as, as shocking of a way as they expressed it, but it's the same principle. It's the same uh, principle of life that is in our past, not our evaluation of it, but of God's evaluation of it. And so uh, we were all before Christ formerly alienated from the life of God, hostile in mind, and because of that engaged in evil uh, deeds. In fact, even your good deeds before you knew God through Christ even the deeds that the world recognizes as good and which outwardly are good uh, deeds are tainted by this inward disposition towards uh, God. Isaiah speaks of that. Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6, which says, 
For all of us has become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds, not all our sins that he's speaking about, but all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us uh, away. And so this is what we were before Christ. This is why we need the reconciliation that can only be found in uh, Christ. Why was Paul reminding the Colossians of this, what they once were uh, before Christ? Why am I reminding you of this this morning, as Paul uh, reminded uh, the Colossians? Well, he's reminding them why reconciliation is the thing that they needed at that time. It's what they still need uh, at the time is, is to uh, um, experience uh, that uh, reconciliation. In other words, before Christ, they were not in need of enrichment, improvement, completion, uh, a finishing school for good people. No, they needed reconciliation. They needed an exchange of enmity, as ugly as that is, as ugly as that sounds, and it actually is an exchange of enmity for friendship. And so he reminds them of what they once were apart from Christ. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. Well, where is this reconciliation found? The exchange of enmity for its very opposite, which is uh, friendship. Where is the Colossians reconciliation found? Where is your reconciliation found? Uh, found. Well, that's uh, the second uh, point, and it's in verse uh, 22. The first, uh, when Paul uh, explained to them why reconciliation was needed, it was an assertion about their past. When Paul expresses here uh, where their reconciliation is found, it's an assertion about the present, and it's found in verse 22. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond uh, reproach. When uh, they had hostility, it was expressed in their mind, and it took place in evil deeds. But this is where the reconciliation takes place, where the enmity that they were expressing in their minds and uh, in their deeds is turned into friendship. And that's also in a body, but not yours. It's in the body of Christ. And so he says, yet he, that is Christ, has now reconciled you. He's now exchanged that enmity that you once had before you met Christ for friendship. And where has he done it? It specifically mentions this. In his fleshly body through death. That's the only place where this reconciliation is found. That's where it resides, is in Christ and actually in the body of Christ. Uh, he mentions the body and he emphasizes it. You can't miss it, you know, in his body. And then he uses the word his fleshly body. So you can't, you know, he's not speaking of some kind of metaphor here. He's speaking of a human body. It's a good corrective for us um, who live in a time of uh, the new age or new age teachings of this sort of things. But really, it's old. <laughs> I don't know why it's called uh, new, because it's really some of the same things that the Colossians were uh, struggling with. Uh, and that is the idea that the most important things, the things that can really advance you towards God or towards enlightenment, are beyond the physical, are uh, metaphysical. And uh, so the idea is, and I think the Colossians were probably involved with this too, is that in order to draw closer to God, you need to escape the physical and advance to something that is beyond uh, the physical in uh, the spiritual world. Well, if you read scripture... 
Being physical is not the problem. In fact, God created man body out of the dust of the earth, and then he said it's good. He didn't say anything about it being evil or even anything about it being uh, lacking. And so we don't need to escape being physical. What we need to escape is enmity with God. That's what uh, these kind of teachings are trying to distract from is, is our real problem. It's not uh, being uh, physical, uh, but it is escaping enmity to God. And so Paul reminds the Colossians that the place where their enmity towards God, their hostility, their rebellion towards God is in an actual physical body. It's important for us uh, to remember as well. An actual physical body with fingers and toes and hair and eyes and ears that sweat and breathes and bleeds. Uh, And not only in a body, but through an actual death in his fleshly body, through death, a death that results resulted in a lifeless corpse. That's what this death uh, produced with all the horror and every indignity of death, like the heart stopping, the blood congealing, the eyes glassing over into a fixed uh, stare, the mouth uh, gaping open. All of that is what he's talking about. And of course, it's the death of Christ. He, Christ, has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Where does death come from? Where does death come from? I mentioned some of the indignities and the horrors of death because it's very unnatural. It's very, we were created to live when God pronounced this good, uh, before sin, uh, came. Uh, death wasn't present. Death wasn't present and death is an invader. Death is, uh, an alien. And where does death come from? It comes from sin. The wages of sin is death and sin produces death according to God's law. So, and the, the law is God's righteous, uh, requirement. Um, and so sin through the law produces, uh, death. For the Colossians, Christ's body and the centrality of his body in the place of the Christian life had been eclipsed by other devices to deal with sin that don't involve death. And I mentioned some of them already, like uh, special angel mediators or extra commands or mysticism. And the purpose of all those things is to push back on the law's claims against you, uh, a sinner, and even as a Christian, still a practicing uh, sinner. The purpose of those things is to push back on the law's claims so that they don't result in a death. To say, you know, I I really don't deserve death according to God's laws or somehow these things are going to make me to where uh, sin doesn't result in uh, death. But when you let God's law find you a sinner, a total guilty sinner as you are and kill you in Christ, that's where reconciliation is found. And that's where reconciliation is experienced for the Christian. And so the, the body of Christ and the reconciliation that we have in his fleshly body through uh, death is still central for uh, the Christian as well as where God, it's the place where God has reconciled us. It's through his uh, body. And so as a Christian, even when we stumble uh, into sin, we're not to say to the law's demands for death, uh, for us, we're not saying, no, I'm, I'm not guilty. Just look at these special commands that I'm following. They're extra commands. They're extra credit. So I'm actually not uh, guilty in the sight of the law. Or look, I've got a special mediator, not one who's died, but, but an angel, a special angel. Or I've got some sort of mystical, uh, techniques, 
No, instead we say to the law, you claim death for me, rightly, according to the, the righteous law of God. Let me show you death. Let me show you a real death that produced a real corpse of a human body. And actually this death is the death of the son of God. Uh, and that what that does is what dies with him. When we show the law, that kind of death, the death of Christ uh, in our place, what dies with him is all sense of earning God's favor through the law or keeping the demands of the law at uh, bay. And in fact, that's the thing that keeps us distant from God and distant from his uh, grace. That's what keeps our hard heart from being melted by his grace is uh, the things that would keep the law's claims at bay rather than showing them, than, than directing them to Christ and the death that Christ has died in our place so that we can relate to God, not through cleaning ourselves up through the law, but through his grace, which is shown to us in Christ. And yet that itself is not even the, the end point. Notice what he says about uh, the death. He's reconciled us in his fleshly body through death. The death is not the end point. And what, what does the death of Christ lead to? Well, it leads to his resurrection. When we die with him, we are risen with him, and we're risen in a new life that has an entirely different quality than the old life, an entirely different principle. We talked about some of the deeds that come from the old life, the life of hostility to God. It's a life of taking. It's a life of grasping. It's a life of uh, selfishness. And its emblem is the God that you imagine presiding over that kind of life. He's not the real uh, God. He's a God you want to get away from. He's a God you want to keep your distance from because he's characterized by that same kind of grasping and uh, uh, taking. But the God that you find in Christ through the body of Christ uh, who dies to the claims of the law, which are right claims about you because you're a sinner uh, in uh, Christ the God that you find there is a God whose glory is to give. And so when you die with him, when all your claims to earning God's favor dies with him uh, as well, then you rise up to a new kind of life whose emblem is the cross, the act of giving, the character of God that's revealed to the cross of a kind that the world doesn't know. And that now becomes your uh, life. For that kind of God, you have every reason to live close to him and then become like him as well. So this is what uh, the Lord was talking about to the woman at the well when he said uh, to her, John 4, uh, 13 and 14, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. It's a water that never runs out. It's the water of self-giving love uh, given to you. He says to the woman at the well, I will give it to you and it will become in you water of the same kind. Water of uh, self-giving love that never runs out. The uh, woman at the well, her life was hard. It was, it was harder because her life was all about herself. And so the Lord said, I'm going to give you water it's a free gift. It's going to give you eternal life, and it's actually going to change you. It's going to be a fountain of water uh, of the same kind, of a, of a totally different kind of uh, life. So the reconciliation that we have is found in uh, Christ, in the body of Christ, in the death uh, of Christ. 
But you'll notice in verse 22, as he talks about this reconciliation that we have, there's two sacrifices. There's two sacrifices. One sacrifice leads to another. The once for all sacrifice of Christ leads to an ongoing uh, sacrifice um, that we participate in. It says, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's what's on the other side of this death is this resurrection life. Paul describes it in terms of a sacrifice. And so he uses a number of words that are used for a sacrifice in order to present you. He's made you a friend through the body of Christ, through the death of Christ, in order to present you. That's a sacrificial word. That's what priests did uh, with an offering to present you before him. Again, that's another sacrificial expression. Holy and blameless. That's what the sacrifices were to be. They were to be holy and um, without uh, spot. And uh, when the new life begins to stir in us, a new principle of life, instead of the life of taking, the life of giving, we become these kind of sacrifices to the Lord in his sight, with our sins forgiven. And uh, this new life is to him, um, whether in things large or in, or in things small, pleasing to him like a sacrifice, uh, presented before him, holy and blameless. And then he uses one final description. It's a word that's not so much used for sacrifices as it is used for uh, a courtroom and a judge beyond reproach. Nobody can bring an accusation uh, against them. And I don't think that was used so much for um, sacrifices, but it's used for the courtroom. And uh, there's a coming judgment day for uh, believers, this pleasing sacrifice to the Lord is happening now to those who are uh, reconciled, made friends of God through the body and the death of uh, Christ. But it's uh, going to culminate in a final judgment day for all uh, believers, which scripture speaks of as joyful, a joyful uh, judgment day. In other words, there's going to be something found in all that's worth commending by the judge. Our sins are going to be forgiven. The rewards will be unequal. Some have, will have borne fruit in, in the, the new life, 60-fold, some 30-fold, some 100-fold. Some will have two talents that they've turned into four. Some will have five talents that they've turned into uh, 10. Uh, but um, there will be joy for all. There will be joy for all. That's what happens when you're reconciled to Christ through, to God through the fleshly body of Christ in order to present you a holy sacrifice and beyond reproach. Your sins are forgiven and the stirrings of the new life are rewarded in uh, Christ and are pleasing to him. On that judgment day, there will be joy for all. There will be uh, different levels of reward. The first will be last and the last will be first. In other words, we'll be surprised at who's rewarded much and who is rewarded little because God's uh, way of counting uh, is different from uh, ours. Well, why is Paul reminding the Colossians of where their reconciliation is found? And why am I reminding you this morning? Well, he's reminding them that their reconciliation is found only in Christ. Because only in Christ is enmity exchanged for friendship. He showed them their need of it, and then he shows them uh, where it's found. Finally, he tells them how this reconciliation is experienced, and that's in verse uh, 23. Let me read it. 
If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. When he talks about how this reconciliation is uh, experienced, he does it by stating a condition on our reconciliation, and the condition is faith. Condition is faith. If indeed he's describing the reconciliation that's taken place, and he says it's true of the Thessalonians, if, here's the condition, you continue in the faith firmly firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard. This is the way the reconciliation is experienced. It's experienced by faith. There's faith at the beginning, faith in the middle, faith at the end. And so he expresses this uh, condition. He expresses it this way because it's perfectly suited to the Colossians situation because they were in danger of moving away from the gospel. They were in danger of eclipsing it with something else. They were in danger of trying to advance beyond the gospel and move up to a second tier. And so Paul says this reconciliation that's yours uh, in Christ is yours if you continue in the same faith that you uh, already knew from the beginning. And if you're established and steadfast, not in something new, uh, but in that, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, they were in danger of uh, seeking to move away from the hope of that gospel. And then he explains that gospel as the gospel which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made the minister. In other words, this is believed, this gospel, this simple gospel, which is the key to your whole Christian life, is what's believed by Christians everywhere. The strange teaching that the Colossians had gotten into was only believed in one place. It was only believed in this valley. That's why Paul didn't write a letter to to every church. He wrote a letter to the Colossian church, and he told them to read it in the neighboring town of uh, Laodicea, and I think he tells them to read it in Hierapolis uh, as well. These uh, three cities that were in the Lycus Valley Those are the only ones that believed in the same way as uh, the Colossians. And so uh, they must have considered themselves on the cutting edge. And since Colossians was sort of the source of this false teaching, uh, the Colossian church especially uh, saw themselves as on the cutting edge of the second level. They were really second level Christians. And Paul is telling them, no, you're not advancing. You're actually regressing. You You need to go back to what all Christians believe everywhere. The same gospel uh, that saves uh, those in all creation under heaven. The same gospel that Christians young and old know, weak and strong, mature and immature, that saved them all. Uh, that's uh, The reconciliation is yours if you continue in faith in that same gospel and not moved uh, away from it. And then he says about this gospel, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. And Paul was uniquely te- uh, qualified to testify about what was believed everywhere, in every church because of his travels and because he had established churches in places all over all over the map of um, Asia and of Europe. And so he's uh, reminding them of that. Why is this stated as a condition? Why is this stated as a condition? This reconciliation is yours. You need it. Here's where it is. It's in the body of Christ and through its death, through his death. And it's yours if you continue in the faith. Uh, firmly established in the faith and not moved away from the hope of uh, the gospel. Does he state it as a condition because once this reconciliation is yours and you've gone from being an enemy to being a friend in Christ, you can lose it? 
As he stated as a condition, because it's not really complete. Christ has done his part, um, and he's accomplished the reconciliation as much as he can. Uh, and then your part is to continue in the faith, and that adds the final piece to uh, the reconciliation. No, it's complete in Christ. That's why it's received by faith it's, uh, and experienced by faith all along the way. It's a gift that's uh, completely accomplished by uh, Christ. That's not why Paul states it as uh, a condition. Let me say a couple of things about it. And one has to do with grammar. Um, in Greek, there's several ways of stating a conditional sentence, and it, it doesn't come across in uh, English. But uh, this is the way of stating a condition that the speaker assumes to be true. The speaker assumes it to be true. Um, so Paul says, if you continue the faith in the faith firmly established and steadfast, and he states it in such a way that he conveys to them that he's thinking, and I, I think that you will. I'm assuming that you will. It's, it's true of you if you continue in the faith, and I'm assuming you will. Um, let me show you a couple of examples of that kind of conditional statement, like Ephesians chapter 3 and uh, verse 2. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. And they had. And he knew they had. He assumed they had, even though he was uh, saying it in that way. Or Ephesians 4, uh, 21. If indeed you have heard him and been taught in him, just as the truth is in Christ. And he knew that they had been taught in him. And so he brings it up, uh, assuming uh, that they have. So uh, Paul isn't casting a great deal of doubt on whether or not they would continue in uh, the faith, but he still states it as a condition to bring that to their um, attention. I think the reason for that is this. The reason why you can't lose your salvation once you've been reconciled in Christ, once that has begun in you, why it's finished is because Christ is such a good shepherd. Christ is such a good shepherd. There's a psalm, Psalm 78, I won't read it, but it talks about God's choice of David, who foreshadows who Christ will be. It talks about him shepherding the sheep tenderly. He was chosen out of the sheepfolds, and he shepherded them with his skillful hands. David was a skillful shepherd, even as a boy, even before he was called uh, to be a king. And of course, Christ is uh, the, the good shepherd, he is the good shepherd. He keeps those sheep uh, that are his, but he keeps them as a skillful good shepherd. In other words, he doesn't keep them automatically. He keeps them by means, and often by means of warning from his uh, word. And that's why I say it's a, it's a condition where the speaker assumes that they are going to continue, but it's still stated as an if. It's to warn them. It's to warn them. And it's actually the shepherd, Christ, who's warning them through uh, his word. So Christ sovereignly keeps those who belong with him, infallibly keeps those who belong to him, irresistibly keeps those who belong to him, but not automatically, not by taking over uh, everything or not by coercing uh, them. Actually, the way in which Christ is a good shepherd which he sovereignly accomplishes this task of keeping those who are his is by impressing our responsibility on us. He sovereignly sees to it uh, that he impresses on us with our responsibility, and it's our responsibility to remain steadfast in uh, the gospel. Christ's sheep hear his voice because of that, including his voice of warning, and because of that, he loses not a single one. But that's what Paul's doing. That's why he wrote to them. 
That's why he didn't just uh, pray for the Colossians. Uh, but he actually wrote to them. He confronted them with their um, responsibility to remain uh, with uh, the gospel, to remain uh, uh, holding to and being steadfast in uh, the gospel. Well, let me close with this. Whatever it is you're struggling with this morning in the Christian walk, perhaps you've grown cold, perhaps you've uh, stumbled into sin, perhaps you've been discouraged by uh, suffering. I'll tell you what the Colossians forgot, and that is that Christ himself is your answer. Christ is the one in his person who turns mourning into dancing, who turns sackcloth into gladness, who gives beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. It's only in him that reconciliation is found, turning enmity, hostility toward God into its opposite friendship with God. And it's through his death, not not to remain there, but to go on into the life beyond that, uh, the life of uh, resurrection and the life of love. So let me just challenge you this morning, wherever you are in the Christian uh, life, Christ is the answer, which means draw near to God through him, trusting in him, trusting in the favor of God that's yours uh, through him, and then walking in such a way that you become like him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the reconciler. We thank you that in his body, reconciliation is found. And we thank you that his body is risen, ascended, glorified at your right hand, and yet uh, human, because he has uh, died in our place. He lives in our place as well. And we participate in his life, a new life, by uh, faith. We thank you that when the law speaks uh, against us, it's satisfied not by trying to figure out loopholes, trying to figure out uh, ways in which um, we're really not what the law says uh, that we are, but instead pointing to Christ, pointing to his death. And the law is satisfied in Christ and favor is found in Christ. And then we're risen up to live and to uh, continue experiencing a new life that's found in Christ, in your favor, and showing that same sort of grace, that same sort of love to others and living a life characterized by that. We pray that we might grow away from the old life of enmity and grow towards uh, the new life that you've given us, a life of friendship with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.